Hello, this is Christopher Eck. I am the lead pastor at Bethany Covenant Church in Bedford, New Hampshire. Welcome to our podcast. I hope this message inspires, helps, and encourages you as you seek to live your life with Jesus. For more information about our church or to support the ministry, visit BethanyCovenant.com. Enjoy the message. Well, one of the, welcome again to Bethany. My name is Pastor Chris. Glad that you are here for this first Sunday of Advent. And one of the great dynamics of the first Sunday of Advent is it gives each of us kind of a brand new beginning and a little bit of a reset in our life with God if that's what's needed. It was a new beginning for everybody that Christmas, for Zechariah, for Elizabeth, for Joseph, for Mary, for the shepherds, for the magi. Like each one of those people started something new in that Christmas season. Their life wasn't going to be different or wasn't going to be the same after that. It was going to be different. And it can be the same for us. Whether we're in a just place of tiredness, whether our prayer life is not going as expected, whether there's just something where we need to renew it and make it new again because of Jesus, Advent provides that like kind of first step towards doing something and having something new happen in our lives. When Advent happened in the book, or when the Christmas story happened in the book of Luke, Luke records four poems or songs about this kind of new thing that God was doing. David led us through Zachariah's song last week. Mary has really probably the most famous song or poem in the book of Luke, and we're going to look at part of it today and part of it next week. Then the angels, they sing to the shepherd. That's the other song in the book of Luke. And then the last one, which we'll look at after Christmas, is the Jewish priest Simeon in the temple when Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to be dedicated. All of them are just kind of great poems and songs about this new beginning that Jesus is doing. We'll come to the table today in communion. The table is open to all who have put their faith and their hope in the person of Jesus Christ. If you haven't taken that step yet, we can take that step before we come to the table today. And so today I'm going to have you open up your Bibles, if you have them, to Luke 146. And that's where we begin to get into this poem or song that Mary writes. And when it comes to Mary, we kind of have like all these different ideas of who she was and what she looked like, um, what her personality was like. I love in Barbara Robinson's The Greatest Christmas Pageant Ever. It's probably one of my favorite Christmas stories where you have like the Herdmans, this unruly group of kids, and they like come to the church to be part of the Christmas pageant. And this church volunteer now needs to manage like all these unruly kids. And the volunteer says that when she's choosing people for the Christmas pageant, she always starts with Mary. And she says, I tell them that we must choose our Mary carefully. Because Mary was the mother of Jesus. I tell them that our Mary should be cheerful and a happy little girl who is unselfish and kind to others. And we kind of have that little bit of a version of Mary in our minds. Other pictures we have are of this kind of somber, white-faced, emotionless, more passive than active look. Like if you look at some of the old artwork of Mary, there's not a lot of expression on her face normally that she maybe lived with more of like a don't-shake-the-boat kind of an attitude than someone who challenged imperial and world powers. So Mary is introduced to us in Luke 1, 26. 
in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Nazareth was believed to have a population of about 400. There's some recent archaeological evidence that maybe thinks Nazareth is bigger than we first thought and may have had a population of about 1,000 people, but still a very small town. Mary was probably one of many people named Mary. About 50% of the women at that point were named Mary. So if you walk through Nazareth, you're like, hi, Mary, hi, Mary, Mary, hi, Mary. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, Mary. Like, you're just saying hi to Mary's all throughout. Um, currently in the U.S., Mary does not top the, one, top the 100 names for girls in 2023. But in Nazareth, it was the most popular name. Nazareth was a more conservative Jewish city. They found that with pottery and other artifacts. And so you can kind of assume that Mary grew up immersed in the Jewish faith. She knew Torah, she knew the prayers, she knew the stories of Joseph and Ruth and Moses and Abraham and Sarah and Miriam. She knew God's rescue of the people from Israel. And so when the angel comes to Mary, she's already engaged to Joseph. They were in the betrothal part of their relationship. They had not been together yet. And Luke 1.28 says, The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. In a town where 50% of the people were named Mary. That in a town that where Rome had never even heard of the city. An angel comes to Mary and says, you are highly favored. And I don't know exactly what that means that she's highly favored. Does it mean she went to temple every week or kept her room really clean I don't think it meant any of those things. That God, when he chooses people, looks at the depth of their character. The depth of who they are. That what we know about God is that he'll call anyone at any time. I think it was Dallas Willard who says, God may be God of the universe, but he is not an elitist. That God shows his greatness by working with anyone off the street who is willing to be used by him you who are highly favored. And Mary's taken back by that description of her. Like she knew her status in the world. She knew that she was one of many Marys from a small town that probably wasn't on most maps. You know, she was probably pretty poor. Her day-to-day -day was very difficult. She knew what her status was in the world. And God begins to walk through this plan in verses 31 through 37. It says, You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be born and be called the Son of God. Now, this was not an easy decision. Mary's given a choice here. And after kind of weighing all the different things that consequences of this, we see Mary in verse 38 say, I am the Lord's servant. May your word be fulfilled. 
and her yes is a new beginning. Our yes to Jesus, or yes to God, is always a new beginning. Mary then packs up, and she makes a long trip to visit her um, cousin Elizabeth, spends time with Elizabeth, who's also pregnant. And it was after that visit that then Mary records a poem or records a song. She writes this poem or song about this moment in her life. It starts very personal, but then expands to include the whole world. So today we'll kind of look at the more personal side. But next week she starts to really get into some pretty kind of world-shaking things that she says. Now, there haven't been many Christmas songs that have been banned or made illegal. You know, no one ever said to Silent Night, oh, we don't want to sing that. Or nobody ever said, oh, Little Town of Bethlehem, don't sing that song. Um, but this song, a couple times, has been illegal in countries from being read. Um, we've had a couple kind of like that in our day. In 1952, a 13-year-old um, named Jimmy Boyd, he wrote the song, I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus. Um, you know that song? Yeah. And the song caused like quite a controversy. Um, like one Cincinnati churchgoer called it a mockery of, fam of decent family life as well as Christ's birthday. The Boston Catholic Archdiocese denounced the song and certain radio stations refused to play it. And so Boyd actually went to the church in Boston, the Archdiocese in Boston, and like explained to him like, no, the song was a boy waking up and walking out and seeing his mother kissing his dad who was dressed up as Santa Claus. And they all went, oh, we get it now. And so now all of a sudden, now we can play that song again. Um, you know, that was made illegal or maybe kind of like banned for a little bit because people didn't understand it. With Mary's song, people understood it all too well. When the British occupied India, singing the Magnificat in church was prohibited. British said you couldn't sing that in church. And on the day when the British were leaving and lowering their flags in India, Gandhi, Gandhi requested that this song be sung in all locations. Like, Kind of a weird thing that he's the one that asked that Mary's song be sung in all these locations that the British flag was coming down. During the years of dictatorship in, 80, in the 80s in Guatemala, it was made illegal to read the song by Mary in public because the song made the Guatemalan poor difficult to control because of its words of change and its words that people have value before God. In Argentina, the military junta declared that the public posting of the words of the Magnificat was not to be done. It was being the women of Plaza de Mayo. They were putting up posters of the words of the Magnificat, calling international attention to people who had just disappeared because of the military. And they said, no, you're not allowed to put that up anymore. not allowed to draw attention to that anymore. The government of El Salvador also banned the Magnificat from being read or sung in the 80s. Imagine that in all these places, you're fine reading the Bible in public. You can read about the resurrection. You can read the parables. You can read the Song of Songs, if that's what you want to read. But this poem from Mary, from Jesus, about Jesus, you can't read that. These are the most words that we hear from Mary in Scripture. 
We find a few more in the events of Jesus, but really this is the most words that we get from Mary in one place. And you kind of wonder, well, what makes this song so dangerous? What is it about this song that kind of is a little bit shaking? Well, here's this 13 to 16-year-old girl from Nazareth. She is one of many people named Mary in this small town. One commentator says Mary is from the bottom rung of her society, one of the least and one of the lowest. And when she starts this song, she's not starting it from a place of high social position. This is how she starts it. Mary writes, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. That Mary's vision of this song will expand to more corporate, but she starts out personal. And notice that first word, my. My soul. My spirit. That when the person uses language like that, my soul, my spirit, they're not just kind of like on the surface of who they are. It's not a phrase like my preference or myself. She is recognizing that she has been moved deeply in her soul and in her spirit. The use of the word my kind of shows the personal nature of this, that she realizes that God has done something very significant in her life. So she says, my soul, my spirit. She's talking about being moved from the depths of who she was. Now, this does not always happen in our lives. Sometimes we're just kind of like have to go through life day to day. You know, there are Sundays that I come to church and they're not always these like soul-quaking Sundays. But there are moments in life where we have this overwhelming sense of praise and gratitude towards God. Uh, we may even cry a little bit. We just kind of feel it from the depths of who we are. Those days where you feel that kind of deep connection, that's where Mary is coming from on this day when she writes it. From the depths of who I am. From the very, very deep parts of my soul and spirit. This is where this praise is coming from. She'll say her soul is glorifying, or most translations, and really the feel of the word is that she's saying my soul magnifies the Lord. Mary is magnifying God. She's like making God bigger. You know, and you're kind of like, well, God is the God of the universe. How do, can we make God bigger than God already is? Why does God need to be magnified in that way? What Mary is doing is telling her story about what God is doing in her life and kind of shining a light on what God is doing for all of us. Otherwise, we would never have known what God was doing in the life of Mary. You know, when we heard about Bless This Home earlier, Many of you maybe never heard of that before. What we did is we shined a light on that. We magnified the work of God in that ministry where people hadn't heard of it before. She was magnifying a work of God so that those who hadn't heard can now hear that God is big, God is God. We do not need to make God bigger by magnifying God. What we do is magnify God to people who have never heard who God was. She's saying, when you see what you see happening in my life, it's not fate, it's not luck, it's not because of where I was born, it's not because of my education, it's not because of my lineage, it's not because I got some big break. It is because of God. And she is magnifying now this to the world. 
you know, at times God will come onto the scene with great power and everybody will see it. But there are so many times in the scriptures where what God does is kind of like hidden and in the background. God sent his son as a baby, a baby born in a stable with nobody around. It doesn't get much quieter than that. When Jesus first started teaching, it was just a small group of disciples. It doesn't get much quieter than that. And then the disciples start to magnify who Jesus was, kind of enlarge Jesus, and more people began to come. The resurrection of Jesus was, even though we kind of sing big songs on Easter Sunday, like it was a fairly quiet morning in a garden with women who saw the resurrected Jesus and then disciples seeing the resurrected Jesus. And then they begin to magnify who Jesus was to everybody else. That God works differently than just hyping up everything in a big way. Even Jesus said that. That he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all the way through the dough. But there are going to be the big moments in our lives. They're going to be the mountaintop moments, the spectacular conversions, and the amazing miracles. They're going to be great outpouring of God. But that is most of the time not the way God works. That most of the way God works is through the little subtle ways in us being able to say, here is God at work. Let me show you Jesus in the way that I live, in the way that I speak, in the way that I am. And Mary is saying, my soul is magnifying Jesus, magnifying God, bringing God to other people, shining a light on God in this moment. In the next line of the song, Mary then gets very realistic about her life. That songs are a great place to be vulnerable. And she kind of tells us what her life is like. That Mary says, and is very honest, where she says, for he has been mindful of the lowliness, or in some versions, the humble state of his servant. That she is living in the reality about her place in the world. Mary knows that she is not royalty. She does not live in a palace. She is not the daughter of the chief priests in Jerusalem. She is not from a wealthy or an educated family. She is not the daughter of a great landowner that Mary is the daughter of none of these important people. We don't even know the names of Mary's parents. And then she writes, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. That she realizes her status in the world, but she's also honest about the new status that God gives her. She's very honest about what love was life was like before God in her life and now what life is like because of what God is going to do through her. And she looks at God and he says, For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And we'll see later that she could probably say this about the whole world, that the mighty one has done great things for all of us. But again, she's starting with the personal that Mary is elevated because of God. Mary is lifted up from this lowly place because of God. Mary is given a new status that she did not have before. And she tells us as part of her story in the first part of her song. And you can see how this could be dangerous. 
Because when people start to know that they're loved by God, when people start to know even in their lowliness of worldly status that they have great status with God, when people start to see that they have a new identity, when people start to see that they have a new love because of God, that shakes up not just individual lives, but it shakes up cultures, it shakes the entire world. When Moses brought the Israelites out of Egypt, they were now safe from the pursuing armies of the Egyptians. And God goes to Moses and says, I want you to go to all the people and I want you to do a census, count them. But the Hebrew word there is, I want you to go and count them head by head. Or I want you to go and lift their heads. That's kind of what the Hebrew is. Go and lift up their heads. Because the slaves, well, they do. Their head was always down. Their eyes were always down. They were called derogatory things, not their name. And the first thing that God tells Moses to do, it says, go to every person and lift their head and call them by name again. When David is on the run from his enemies and talking about all the pressures from those around him, David writes in Psalm 3, 3, but you, Lord, are shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. You are the lifter of my head. Mary, David, the Israelites, we're all being lifted by God, each from a very different place. Our lowly place may not be the, the same as Mary's, but we have a lowly place in our lives that God needs to lift us out of. Worship, um, the worship writer, Brian Dokson, he wrote a worship song in the 1990s, or a bunch of songs in the 90s, Come, Now's the Time to Worship, Refiner's Fire. Those were some of his songs. And in his book, he talks about his son, Isaiah. And he writes this. He says, Isaiah suffers from a fragile X syndrome, a genetic condition which results in physical and intellectual and emotional and behavioral limitations. In his book, Brian reflects on the day he and his wife received medical confirmation of Isaiah's condition. And this is what he says. After receiving the test results, I stumbled around our property, weeping, confused, heartbroken. At one point, I lifted my voice to heaven and handed in my resignation. God, I am through being a worship leader and a songwriter. And then he describes this moment where he had this feeling of God saying, will you trust me? Will you go even with your broken heart? For who will relate to the people who are brokenhearted if not those like you who are acquainted with disappointment. And then he writes this. He says, I used to think people were most blessed by our great victories, but now I think differently. People are just longing to hear others speak of how they have walked through the deepest valleys. The, words the, world, the world lifts up the victorious and the successful, but God lifts up the brokenhearted. Our place may not be the same as Mary's, but we have a lowly place we need God to lift us out of. God magnifies, Mary magnifies the God who lifts her head. Mary magnifies the God who lifts us from the miry clay. We may not be the lowest on the cultural status level, but we need to be lifted somewhere. We may not have a low bank account or a low impact job, 
but there's some place in our life where we need God to lift us. It could be just worrying day to day, and God can lift us out of that. Or sin that continues to entangle us, God gives us forgiveness. Or a relationship that is tense, and God gives us wisdom and lifts us out of it. Or a prayer life that is stagnant, and God helps lift us out of that. Or a lacking of purpose, and God helps lift us out of that. Part of that lifting is that step of forgiveness that we receive from Jesus. A forgiveness that began on the cross, a forgiveness that ended with the, or that came through the resurrection and a new life. And it was before Jesus went to the cross that he gathered with his disciples. And I invite you to hear the words of our Lord Jesus as they are delivered by the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us pray. Lord, we are grateful for the invitation to your table. And today, if you are not a follower of Jesus, have not crossed that line of faith, and today want to take that step, today's the day to say, okay, Jesus, today I'm going to cross that line of faith. I'm going to say yes to you and begin to follow you. I'm going to go take communion for the first time today as a follower of you. This let Jesus know that decision as Mary let God know her decision. Lord, we now ask that you bless us. We come to your table. In your name, amen.